Welcome, everyone, to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And I am James Rosica. And uh, every episode uh, on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, a new movie and an old movie. And we try and connect the dots between the two. And uh, this uh, this episode, so we're watching Blonde, the new uh, Netflix uh, originals feature, and comparing it with 1985's Insignificance by Nick Rogue. Uh, double dose of uh, blonde hair. Yeah. Double dose of longish movies, too. Uh, yeah. And sometimes here at the club, I think we take one for the team. So we watched some films. <laughs> And we may have taken up a lot of hours of our time this weekend in order to save you a lot of your hours. So um, I'm looking forward to today, today's conversation for sure. Um, but before we get started, let's talk about our socials. Um, we can be found on Twitter at uh, Two Real Cinema Club at Twitter.com, Instagram, also Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. Read the blog where Jimmy does great writing and I never managed to actually successfully <laughs> post anything. That's tworealcinemaclub.com. Email us if I can find the password or Jimmy can give us a new one. I'll check that. That's tworealcinemaclub at gmail.com. And tell your friends. Excitement is spreading, Jimmy, I think, uh, because people are talking about Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And the audience is growing because we like talking and I guess... Small number of you like listening. <laughs> Some people like listening. There's, there's someone else talking in the background as well, and you're having your house painted. I can hear the guy painting the house behind you. Yes, the painters <laughs> will be painting. There'll be foul language, most of it in Spanish, so I don't think it'll offend anyone, but uh, they are on ladders <laughs> right behind me, and they're listening to some great music too, so they are singing and painting. It's just like a musical over here. <laughs> well, we get the copyright strike. So, uh, so well, let's talk about uh, Blonde then. So, uh, a lot of publicity about this film. It has been um, on the internet and in the papers a lot in this country. So, Blonde is uh, the new feature film from Andrew Dominic. Now, I haven't seen any of his films before. I don't know whether you have. I saw the very long titled, long and slow <laughs> film about... Um, Someone was killed by Jesse James, the coward Jesse, Jesse James. James. Or was it the Jesse James Not, was killed by the coward something forward, something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so. Um, oh. And then, uh, I think his first film was Chopper. Didn't see it. Um, which introduced the world to Eric Banner. I haven't seen it. Okay. Um, he, he directed Killing Them Softly about 10 years ago. Haven't seen it. No. Um, and uh, Blonde, so his current picture, um, his first film for about 10 years. It's been in development for 10 years, based on a book written by Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. Published 20 years ago. So uh, published in 2000. Um, so apparently he started developing a project in 2010. Um, people were cast. People were uncast. Eventually they started shooting in 2019. Then they got halfway through the shoot and something happened and they had to stop for a while. And eventually, so it's finally out now in the autumn of 2022. And it's a a kind of people are billing it as an alternative history. It's a biopic. Of uh, Marilyn Monroe, 1950s, 1960s film star. I feel like when I was a boy, no one would need to explain who Marilyn Monroe is. But mm. I haven't done a little survey. I, I don't know whether my children know who she is. I don't think she has the same currency with young people now that she did when I was young. She'd only been dead for 20 years when you and I were young. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, she's a much more historical figure now. Well, she's been dead 60 years. So that makes you more historical because... Oh. You're just longer dead. You're more dead than you used to be. So she's become more historical. And yes, it's a biopic, but it's definitely based on this fictional novel by Joyce Carol Oates. So it's it's fiction. It doesn't say that at the outset, which is different from the other film we watched this week. Yep, yep. 
So uh, it's it's kind of admitting that it's a fiction, but only kind of one arm removed. So the story is the story of Norma Jean, uh, the daughter of mentally unwell Gladys. And the uh, film opens with her as a girl living with her, her kind of unstable and much troubled mother. Um, Gladys tells her daughter, Norma Jean, an impressionable seven-year-old, that her father is the man in a photo. It's still from a movie. Um, she implies that her father is a man who's a movie star and she can't say who it is. And one day she hopes that her daughter will meet her father. Um, but it's all um, very vague and hush-hush. And she can't really bring herself to, to give any more details than that. There's a shocking opening scene with Los Angeles on fire. Gladys drives Norma Jean through the through the flames and through the ash, um, having what looks like some kind of psychotic episode, convinced that she'll be able to make it to, um, to Norma Jean's father's house. And they get turned back by the police who clearly identify that Gladys is not having a good night. All ends badly for Norma Jean. She's beaten up by her mother in the car and then her mother attempts to drown her later on. It's a Oof. blooming awful opening, awful childhood for Norma Jean. Great job by the child actress who portrays mm. her. Um, but those first 10 or 15 minutes, pretty brutal and um, and a, a fairly representative clue of what we got to look forward to for the remaining two hours and 40 minutes of the film. So the young impressionable Norma Jean ends up uh, going to a, uh, an orphanage and, uh, and then we jump forward and she becomes a model. She's on the front of magazines um, and then she quickly becomes an actor. Um, it's, uh, it's a tough gig for a young, attractive woman in Hollywood in the 1940s and 50s. She's raped at a go-see by someone who you have to presume is Daryl Zanuck, someone who's just called Mr. Z. Mr. Z. Yeah. Um, I think we'll, we'll need to talk about the fact that no one gets really named in this film, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, uh, which is the same for for both of them. Yeah, movies that's true. On the, on the bill tonight, um, so she gets her start in showbiz through that, and she ends up in a three way tryst um, with uh, the son of Charlie Chaplin, Kaz Chaplin, and the son of Edward G. Robinson, Eddie Robinson. Um, and the, the film feels like it's divided. I would say into five chapters, mm. and, and the chapters are all uh, really based on the people that she is spending her time with. She has a chapter with her mother, a chapter with Chaplin and Robinson. Um, she falls pregnant uh, by one of them, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and they have. There's a, a number of fairly racy scenes where they they have sex in what looks like a a, a fairground mirror. With their kind of crazy distorted bodies. Mm. Uh, she falls pregnant, has a termination. Um, their friendship falls apart. Uh, so she meets and marries Joe DiMaggio, but his family sneer at her. They have no respect for her. He beats her in a fit of jealousy. Uh, they split up. She meets and marries Arthur Miller, but uh, she rather feels that uh, he thinks of her as a kind of... Um, it's more of material Sl than as a person. Slow down there, Razor. <laughs> Sorry. Am I racing ahead of myself? You, you've dropped some names, which I think you're not legally allowed to do. So ah, well. it's the ball player and the playwright. You mentioned about something about two famous men who she may have, well, the real Marilyn Monroe may have been married to. But in the film, I think they're called the ball player and the playwright. But I suppose in in the in the film, 
the lead character is called Marilyn Monroe. And historically, the real Marilyn Monroe was really married to the real Joe DiMaggio and the real Arthur Miller. Thank you. So, okay, so <laughs> uh, 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 lawyers stand down. <laughs> um, either way, um, she goes through a, you know, a number of unsatisfying relationships. Um, when her relationship with the man who resembles Arthur Miller uh, disintegrates. She becomes increasingly unstable. Um, uh, she's kind of raging on the, the set of Some Like It Hot. She's living in a kind of druggy, alcoholic haze. Uh, she's shipped off to to give John F. Kennedy a, a hand job while he watches The Twilight Zone. Um, and and uh, eventually um, she uh, takes her own life um, after Cass Chaplin, her original first lover, uh, reveals that uh, all the way through the movie, she believes she's been receiving letters from her father, who she hopes to meet one day. And at the very end of the movie, um, Kaz writes her a letter explaining that, uh, no, it was him pretending to be the father all the t- all along. The father didn't exist. Um, she feels directionless, directionless, takes a bunch of barbiturates, takes her own life. The movie takes two and three quarter hours to go through this relentlessly bleak um, sorrowful, violent, unhappy story. And the UK press have largely labelled the film a horror movie. Ooh. Do you think that's a fair description? Um, I heard trauma porn, which I like a little mm. bit more. I think that was the New York Times. Um, horror, it is in some ways, yeah. It's a, well, it's a horror bull movie. <laughs> uh, does that make it a horror film? Yeah, for me, for two hours, 45 minutes, that does make it a horror movie. Yeah, I mean, there is a, there is a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a talking fetus. There is a lot of violence. I mean, pretty explicit violence. Yeah. Um, if not necessarily horror, it's yeah, it's terror, like you say. Um, I know we like to talk about writing on the on the pod, so I mean, it would like be nice to try and focus on some aspects of the writing of the story. And I think there are good scenes in this film. I think um, you know there is a scene where she meets alleged Arthur Miller, and they have a you know a discussion about um, you know the characters in his play, yeah, um, and about Chekhov. And I, I thought that was you know a nicely written scene. It's a, it's a, just a one on one scene, um, which I thought actually lent Marilyn's character a little bit of intellectual depth. I think there's a great scene where she meets Joe DiMaggio's family, mm. who this kind of this family of Italians who are all just kind of like smirking and laughing at her and, and uh, treating her as an underling. Um, and she's kind of, you know, gamely doing her very best to fit in with her husband's new family. And I think that also is a skillfully written scene. There are some good scenes and some well-written scenes, but that's not really the norm, I think. There is um, a lot of not quite such hot writing in this film. There's a lot of, of talky-talky writing, I think. A lot of too much dialogue. There's, um, I, I had to write some of it down here. There's a scene uh, with Arthur Miller where um, uh, he, he says to her, every day since Maine, we're getting more and more distant. It's all the drink and drugs. They're, they're not frightened about... Uh, writing a scene where the characters explain yeah. in clear words uh, exactly what the story is and what's happening. Yeah. Well, as a playwright, I guess a playwright does that because they have to tell the story a little bit more than a filmmaker does. But uh, it's ironic that uh, they've got the playwright, not Arthur Miller, but the playwright, um, <laughs> like, yeah, telling us what happened in some earlier scene in some other place. It's uh, 
Yeah, classic mistake, I think. Um, and and there's a bunch of kind of you know, terribly painful puns. I thought actually there's a um, a scene uh, that she's shooting where she has to um, hold a, a razor blade against her her neck. And yeah. the director shouts, cut for the end of the scene. And we're supposed to be all gobsmacked at the amazing irony of her holding a blade in her, her hand while someone says cut. Oh, isn't that incredible? Um, or uh, uh, one of the several scenes where she has a termination of pregnancy and she's uh, driving in the back of the car and she goes past oh, a yeah. stop sign. Mm. And she starts crying out, oh, no, wait, stop, stop. I don't want to terminate the pregnancy. It's, oh, I, find, I did find a lot of that pretty painful. Yeah. Oh, God, there's another one, too, which is, ugh. I don't even know if I should repeat it. <laughs> oh, go on, repeat it. Oh, so she's, it's after I think she's had a moment with the president and someone, she's in the bathroom sort of recovering and someone's knocking on the door and she says, don't come inside. <laughs> uh, dear. I don't think you would say that if you were on the toilet waiting and someone's knocking on the door. Um, <clears throat> but there, you're right. You pair, you're paying very good attention to the, to the puns. Yeah, it was, Yeah. Hard, hard to digest. Oh, you know, and it's a shame because I think there are a lot of elements of this movie which are pretty spectacularly great. But um, I don't think many of those relate to the script. I think the cinematography in this film is astonishing because it's um, incredibly mimetic. I feel like every famous still of the real Marilyn has somehow been... Uh, it's always been sort of deep faked. It's been yeah. recomposed into a moving image in front of us. It's something to do with the way that the film stock and the lenses that they've used and the lighting um, really feels like some of these very famous photographs are just bursting out of the screen. Yeah, I agree um, with you. And, and then there's a bunch of kind of like clever trick shots. There's, a, I think, a lovely, elegant aeroplane trick shot where uh, Marilyn, mm. towards the end of her life, is kind of drunk and hazy and she's on an aeroplane uh, but the, the aeroplane set has been built um on the side of a an auditorium set so she gets up out of the aeroplane seat and she's immediately in the auditorium for a theater yeah um and you know it's a um you know it's been very cleverly set up and it's you know it's a wonderful clever little shot um, although they're so pleased with it that they then repeat it about five minutes later. yes and the audience is actually she's walking back towards a standing ovation from the uh, this audience as she goes back to her plane seat and she's just thrown up on the camera basically <laughs> so the viewers have all yes. been thrown up on and then they give her a standing ovation for it and i think that was <laughs> emblematic of a lot of the film honestly is just a <laughs> key moment for me i mean the biggest problem is this is very much in terms of writing and then there is writing in there and it's i don't i've not read the joyce carol's book so i don't know how similar it is to the novel um, but it felt like a real director's film. Like he was trying so many different tricks and it was just this experimental playground for him. And as a result, I just didn't, I felt like I was watching six or seven different movies and none of them were very good. And yeah. they were all very long so, because there, there was a lot of inventive filmmaking in there. I'm just sorry that it was lost on such a, such a gruesome tale. And, and I think, you know, that, that first, it's not even the first act, but almost like a, uh, the foreword of it or the prelude to the film is the, her youth, which moves pretty quickly um, in terms of years. I mean, it's, it's actually a very slow kind of opening. The first 10 or 15 minutes don't move that quickly, but we go quickly through her life. Um, and I think, you know, we're supposed to understand all that trauma early on so that we can understand her trauma throughout her life. But it, it seems like it's just dumping more and more trauma on. He's really pulling out all the most traumatic bits of her life and not really acknowledging that this was an intelligent woman and a very good actor. 
Um, certainly in a number of films, she was great. Um, and it really just sort of perpetuates this myth of her as a blonde bimbo and just so troubled and so pathetic. And I don't think we needed that again. I think we've seen that in films. And um, so as a result, I don't think it, it really doesn't hold together as a really complete film for me. It felt like a lot. I was watching a lot of different things. You're right. Some of it's brilliant, beautiful filmmaking, great cinematography. But in terms of telling me a, a uh, a good story about Marilyn Monroe or any actress, I don't think it does it. And it it's just a shame that it does it within the context of a lot of people assuming this is really what her story was like. It's a shame that she's um, she's kind of only, she's only really allowed to want two things, isn't it? Which is her father and a baby. And mm-hmm. that's that's like the extent of her psychological motivation. And yeah. Yeah. She's allowed very little um, intellectual inner life. Um which I think is much better done in our second film when we come to talk about insignificance. Um, but instead, I, I feel like she's, yeah, she's just kind of pared down to either being yeah, a vessel for pain yeah. or, or um, uh, somebody who needs yeah, her daddy issues sorted out. Sure. Um, which is, yeah, feels just like a real injustice to a, you know, a complex and sophisticated real world character. She is kind of broadly used by those around her in the film. But I think she's also used by the camera and the audience in much the same way. Yeah. I think our our viewing the film is only really reproducing the same kind of trauma that she's had to, to, to deal with in real life. What do you think the film is about? If you had to draw a line under a theme, yeah, what do you think is the theme that's going to come out here? Well, there's been so much talk about the sex, and I was getting, you know, feeds in my stream that I'm reading about Ana de Armas defending the sex scenes and Joy, Joyce Carol Oates doing that as well. And it, it, to me, I think it's about sexploitation, and it's very funny that it takes a, a, a sexploitation film of today to <laughs> explore the sexploitation of the 1950s and 60s. Um, I mean, that's what I come away with. That's the biggest uh, theme I take away with. It, it seems to be about um, a very anti-abortion uh, perspective as well. I mean, this is a oh, very yeah. anti-choice film. Um, and it's certainly not about historical accuracy. So that's another thing that it's about. I mean, that's the kind of the scene where the, the little fetus kind of talks to her and says, oh, please don't terminate me, Marilyn. Oh, yeah. it's so painful. Um, it really feels like it belongs in a kind of, you know, like a strange sort of religious fundamentalist cartoon to be shown yeah. to teenagers. An abstinence film or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a very, very strange tone to take. Yeah. And, you know, and especially when you're dealing with um, cinema, it's a kind of, it does annoy me that... Um, People making the film think that the best way to demonstrate this notion that a woman might really want a baby is for the baby to come and speak to her through her abdomen. Yeah. Whereas um, in the UK, at least, if um, if any member of any female member of the royal family even places her hand on her abdomen at any point during any public visit, the UK yeah. press takes off with a massive um, campaign about is Kate pregnant? It's one of those thoughts which is so easy to transmit with yeah. a little bit of physical acting. You know, it, it's um, such a strange way to overegg the pudding by demonstrating that somebody wants a baby by having a talking baby inside them. Yeah, I was I was wondering, kind of the same as you, why why is this film being made now? Why are we why are we exploring? this you know, traumatic and challenging life of Marilyn Monroe in 2022. I was trying to figure out who would be 2022's equivalent of Marilyn Monroe, and I don't think there is one. I think in today's world, 
Marilyn is is both everyone and no one. I don't think there is a single overarching international star who's held up above all others to be you know the the archetype of desirable femininity. And I think you know if you live in a if you live in an urban area these days, you're never more than fifty meters away from someone who's got an OnlyFans page, aren't you? I yeah. think um, this kind of notion of being uh, a kind of um, a professional sex pot has been democratized to the nth degree now mm. and the internet means that oh actually anyone can be a professional sex pot it's you know that the, the the option is there for the taking yeah so that that responsibility is not held one by one famous actress alone yeah yeah exactly so it makes you think well why so what is this film about now well i mean obviously i mean i think there's there's so much sex and there's so much um consequences of sex, I guess, you know, the this, the pregnancies, the abortions, that um, it, it sort of has this inelegant marriage between sex exploitation and potentially the risks of leading that very, very sexy life or something like that. Um, I don't think it juggles it very well because it's so grotesque on both ends. Like the sex is very, very brutal. And then the abortion scenes are very, very brutal. Um, so it's... It's rough. I mean, I, I think that's probably what it. It almost does feel like this sort of uh, uh, this this sort of uh, I don't know. Prim- uh, what would the word be? I mean, this this sort of study of sex and its consequences. I guess that's, that feels like yeah, straight back to the nineteen fifties. Doesn't? Yeah, I mean, it really felt like that to me in many ways. Yeah. Um, as a British viewer, it was interesting to see John F. Kennedy turn up in a very unsympathetic light. <laughs> I I kind of. Uh, uh, like watching it from the UK, you know, there's no kind of great um, mysticism surrounding John F. Kennedy. And it does feel a little bit like he is maybe due his his Me Too moment. I wonder whether there will be a this is the beginning of a reckoning um, on John F. Kennedy's legacy. And actually, maybe uh, maybe having sex with all those women wasn't necessarily like the best way to promote your your progressive democratic ideals yeah. i don't know how what does john f kennedy look like to the average man on the street in the states these days um a lot better than our current and recent past <laughs> alternatives as president probably <laughs> um uh, but i think he he was a fairly well-known philanderer and this you know this uh, this episode with with marilyn Monroe is pretty well uh, pretty common knowledge um yeah it was striking though and i think one thing i was going to come back to is just that this um this film, as you said earlier, was developed sort of before Me Too, and um, mm. and I wonder if it was rewritten at all for the for this moment. So if you're saying like for this moment, I feel like this this film kind of either came too probably just came too late. It just seems it seems out of place. Uh, I know that it was written around 2011, 2012. I think uh, Jessica Chastain was originally um, yeah. expected to play Marilyn, and for sure now she's very happy she didn't take that job or have to do. It. <laughs> Um, but it, it is definitely very pre-Me Too, and it's what feels... Uh, but, and at the same time, it just happens to come out when abortion is such a hot topic over here right now. So right, it's, yeah. its timing is like oddly perfect, but at the same time, it seems like the wrong movement for the moment or the wrong film for the moment. I'm wondering if if there were rewrites you know, starting around 2017 or 2018 to, to change it. It doesn't feel like there were any, any changes. It doesn't seem up to date in that way. I mean, I, I think the whole film, it's structurally very loose. It feels to me a little bit like a rough cut. You know, it comes in at just under three hours. Yeah. And I feel like actually maybe there's quite an interesting 90-minute film in there. But, um, you know, it still needs another four months of people to kind of to edit and maybe yeah. a couple of reshoots and, and, and try and find the film, you know, uh, 
that's that's hot, hiding at the core there. Yeah. I, I think I was just going to mention another theme that I think that we'd, we'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention. I think so much of it's about male gaze and male control oh, yeah. of that industry at that time and, uh, again, sexploitation. And I think that is – see, that part does seem poignant to me because that is very, uh, you know, very post-Me Too. I mean, that we're, we're looking more critically at males in general. There are a lot of scenes in this film. There's one of the film openings that she's entering in and all the people in the crowd are – men just sort of gawking at her uh, as she walks into the theater for a film premiere. And, you know, as, as you said before, like a new look at even John F. Kennedy, who probably today would have been run out of office. It's kind of interesting because, um, you know, we, we were really worried about presidents' uh, private lives here. Bill Clinton was impeached for for um, sexual acts in the Oval Office with someone other than Hillary, his wife. But um, <laughs> And J John F. Kennedy was kind of celebrated for it. So in, you know, in the 20 or 30 years between those two presidents, a lot seems to have changed, but mm. now we have to go back and, yeah, I think reassess uh, JFK and how we felt about him before. So, I'm glad you mentioned that scene about kind of the men baying at her as she goes into the yeah. um, the premiere. Cause that, yeah, that was one of the most horrifying scenes, actually. Yeah. I, I came away thinking, I, you know, like, have, have the men been digitally altered somehow? They seem to have these kind of enormous mouths and these kind of wriggling tongues. Yeah. It was just something which is just... Maybe it's just maybe it was just casting men yeah. with big mouths, but there was just something very disturbing about that sequence. I agree with that. There, I think that was probably my favorite scene because uh, at first you just see the men gawking and yeah. booing and high, catcalling and shouting, uh, and then eventually you see the limo with the playwright and Marilyn Monroe um, pulling up to the premiere. And you're right; every one of those faces looked like a 1950s or 60s man's face. You had the pork pie hats <laughs> and all that, and none of those guys looked like they were, you know, like recent actors or even alive <laughs> today. It was really brilliant. I don't know how they did that, if they, but I, yeah. I think it was just great extras casting. It's a dark crowd. There's no one wearing anything colors. It's one of the black and white scenes. And there's not a woman to be seen. And it, it, that was one of the best moments of the film because I think that did capture the theme of the whole film. It's just this leering, this this gawking, this uh, male gaze everywhere. Uh, there's, there's one other thing the film made me think of. I'll uh, just kind of indulge me here. I don't know whether you remember Sandra Dickinson, who was uh, she was a, an American actor um, who was kind of very mildly successful in the UK, like in the 1980s. And she was she was in the UK. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy television okay. series. And she was married to Peter Davidson, who was a Doctor Who for a while. She was kind of headed to mildly successful sort of TV and film career in the UK. And she <clears throat> was um, a small American woman, very blonde hair. And she used to really trade on having this kind of breathy Marilyn type voice. Yeah. And whenever you saw her, she'd always have this kind of the same kind of sort of little girl lost, sexy girl, sort of breathy voice. And I remember as a boy seeing her on a, a, um, a quiz show. She was on like a celebrity quiz show. And uh, the other kind of guests, the other celebrities on the quiz show were all sort of slightly ribbing her and all making jokes at her expense. And, and eventually um, it got to the point where she came out of character and she said in her non-breathy little voice, in like it's a perfectly normal adult woman's voice, she said, OK, that's enough now. <laughs> and that, that little moment where the Sandra Dickinson that I'd seen on, on telly before suddenly disappeared and like and, and you were 
afforded this tiny little glimpse into the fact that there was a real woman in there who was just doing a voice to, as a character all the way through. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, like, just letting the veil drop for a moment. Yeah. That was like, you know, really revealing. And that was the moment I was waiting for in this film. Well, yeah. Marilyn uses her kind of her breathy little girl voice all the way through the yes. movie. Yeah. And I feel as if she's never allowed to let that veil drop. Yeah. And for, for we, the audience, I mean, even her... Even her mental voice, even when she's speaking to herself, it's always that same kind of sort of uh, breathy stage voice. She's never allowed to see the real woman. Well, there are a couple moments. I think there's an early audition or an early screen test. Sorry about the motorcycle or airplane or whatever. <laughs> um, there's an early screen test where she's um, she's doing looks like a great screen test, honestly. And but she starts. She starts I think she opens by talking about Dostoevsky. And and the guys immediately they just the, the director and the assistant director they never give her a chance they dismiss her immediately she says oh she's just pathetic or whatnot and then later on um, when she's talking to the playwright she's talking about Chekhov a little bit and comparing his play to a Chekhov play and you, you, that's when you see the the non breathy voiced and the 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 I don't know uh, fully brained uh, Marilyn not once I'm the half half wit that's that comes through in much much of the film sadly. Um, so you do see her humanity a couple times, but it's not much. It's just it's much more about her being used by the industry or used by men. And I think that's why it makes it a very complete, incomplete uh, portrait of her. Um, yeah, it's it was a it was a rough film for me, and I didn't. There, you're right. There were some great shots, and one of the great ones was the reproduction of the famous. Um, over the subway vent uh, shot where her white dress mm. is blowing up. But the, the amount of time they spent on it just sort of, <laughs> it it made us all these peeping toms to a certain extent because uh. it was it was probably a minute or two minutes of just the skirt going up and down and up and down. And again, you had more male gaze all around. And it, it just seemed, it was ironic to me that in trying to like, uh, I think, expose the sexism in the industry for so many years, you've got this completely sort of sexploitation uh, sequence of uh, a very famous scene and just really overdoing it. And, it was, and I think that's a lot of it was there was uh, the film for me, there was just a lot of overdoing things and really kind of doing too much. There were so many different camera techniques. There's one point where Bobby kind of Ali's wearing the camera and walking through the house. And then later on, yeah. Marilyn's wearing the camera. We haven't talked I mean, about sometimes it, it feels like a series of camera tests rather yeah. than a film, doesn't it? Somehow. Yeah. Yes. What about I couldn't make out. I was having a hard time figuring out why you're going color sometimes and why you're black and white. And why is the aspect ratio changing yeah. so frequently? It infuriates me. That takes me right out of the picture. Yeah. It's so frustrating. It's, no, yeah, I, I could see no valid story reason for that. It yeah. felt yeah, self-indulgent and silly. Um, one last thing. Yeah. Do you think it's appropriate to phone the cliché squad? You could probably do it again and again. Cliché squad. Can I share mine <laughs> first? You obviously have one, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and beat you to one. The, uh, I must say, this it's, it's, it's one thing for you to present your central character as having daddy issues, but if she's yeah. going to call every single man that she meets daddy in every <laughs> goddamn scene, maybe you have over-egged that pudding. Yeah. That's, my theory. That's my feeling. Yes, okay. The one, the one or ones that I thought of were um, unanswered telephones and unanswered knockings on the doors that uh, happened so many times, and it was just... Uh, I don't know, was this supposed to be opportunity again and again? Um, the final cliche was probably the best one when um, you sort, she sort of disappears as a star among countless stars in this, you know, empty, dark vacuum of space. And she's just indistinguishable, despite the fact that she lived such a, you know, 
memorable life that we're still talking about mm. 60 years later. It was, um, that one wasn't so bad. Right. I think, uh, I think, I think we've um, assassinated poor Marilyn enough. Yes. Um, let's have a quick break. Um, and then maybe we'll come back and talk about a different Marilyn film. Let's see what we've got to say. Okay, see you in a minute. Yeah. Andres, I've got, uh, I've got good news for you now. Not only... Uh, not only are we uh, film critics, but uh, I'm happy to say that Two Real Cinema Club is also going to go into video game publishing. Whoa. Tell me more. Uh, absolutely. So now that, now that uh, Netflix are publishing video games, we're going to get on the bandwagon and do the same thing. I'm happy to announce this autumn we'll be releasing our first video game, uh, which is Film Critics Simulator. You'll be able to play it uh, on mobile or on PC. Uh, you'll start out uh, negotiating a maze of Soho streets, uh, trying to buy a lukewarm coffee while looking for a doorway that's uh, entirely unmarked, which is the screening room. Once you make it in, then... Um, It'll be a lot like a normal film screening, um, only it'll be interrupted every two or three minutes uh, by you having to make notes. Uh, you'll see whether you've got the skill to not drop your pen uh, and to use your phone to light up uh, a bit of uh, a bit of full scap in your lamp and uh, maybe drop the phone, maybe drop the pen and drop the phone, drop the pen, use your phone to try and find the pen, then drop the phone. Um <laughs> right. And then uh, there's uh, bonus marks at the end of that round if you can read your own writing. Oh, yeah. And uh, basically, we'll be using all of the very latest techniques in uh, realism and video game technology to suck all the pleasure out of watching a film. <laughs> uh, and finally, if you, uh, if you play using surround sound headphones, uh, we've managed to get a sample of Derek Malcolm, who'll be standing directly behind you, complaining throughout that the film is shit. Uh, it's only thirty nine ninety nine coming out Ooh. this autumn. Uh, wait, pounds? <laughs> or dollars <laughs> or dollars uh, uh, pounds are worth less than dollars yeah, now right. aren't they okay. I, yeah exactly buy it in dollars what you can I'll, I think. I'll pay either one if someone will do all that work for me <laughs> please you, you, you made me feel like my life is just a game and we are back for a double dose of the blonde. Um, we're going to look next at Insignificance, which is, I think, 1985 film directed by Nicholas Rogue. Before we, before we talk about Insignificance, yeah. I got to. It's a triple dose of a blonde, isn't it? Because oh my God. we didn't get around to talking about it for, um, for Blonde, but you, you've yeah. written a Marilyn script, haven't you? I have written a, a Marilyn script, yes. I was asked to do it by our good friend. Uh, and co-collaborator, um, Zizis Papazikis. But you, you must have been writing that about the same time they were developing Blonde. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because I finished it around um, beginning of 2011, 2010, end of 2010, yeah. I haven't gone back to it and looked at the draft recently, but it was a lot of fun because it's technically going to be, it's supposed to be an animated oh. um, yeah, film of Marilyn Monroe's life. And, and sort of zeroing in on that like 1960s area as well, but you know, some backstory and whatnot. But uh, when he gave me the go-ahead to sort of think of it as an animated picture, I think that just that was a very liberating experience because you can sort of make anything happen. Uh, and I think he still really wants to get it made. I, I think with Marilyn Monroe, you get these like five-year, maybe six, seven-year cycles where 
you'll hear nothing and then you'll hear a couple of films come out, see a couple of things come mm. out. So there was the the last cycle. Um, didn't Eddie Redmayne have a film where he was a sound person or a gaffer or he was on a crew working with Marilyn Monroe? And I wanted to say that that was the Michelle Williams one, but I'm not sure. Um, and then um, there was a documentary at the same time. And right now we've got... Um, Blonde on Netflix. I don't know if there's something else out there or not, but it seems like every few years there's something new that comes out. So she right, gets, okay. she gets a good long look every every uh, once in a while. But uh, Foxy, which uh, Zesis came to me with, so he had a lot of work already done. You know, all the conspiracy theories and things like that. And he sort of gave me a pretty good outline. But then I went back and read some biographies of her and Arthur Miller and others and uh piece the story together so he gave me a lot of freedom which was fun it was it was a blast to write honestly did you go fairly crazy with it um to a certain extent yeah because i wanted to place her in the context of all the stuff that was going on right around her death so it was like the Q- cuban missile crisis was right around oh, that time yeah. um, andy warhol was coming out so we always imagined this sort of uh a roy lichtenstein kind of pop art animation look so that was really fun because you know in terms of the the movies and the art and the politics of the time um it was a lot of fun so and people like Bing Crosby are involved in there. Che Guevara has a line of dialogue. Uh, um, Frank Sinatra. So, I mean, was, there were just so many people around her, and she was sort of this this focal point with the Kennedys as well. So, I mean, there were just so many interesting characters that I was able to sort of bring in one way or another. And I think that's why Zesis thinks she's such a an important figure, because she was really right at the center of yeah. uh, politics, art, and film industry. So she, that's why she's got this sort of lasting uh, influence, I think. And um, there were some great possibilities. So I hope that someday... He will make it. I think it's the kind of thing where you know, animation isn't necessarily super, super expensive if you've got a really committed crew to, to do it. So I think he could possibly make it happen. So yeah, It sounds a lot more interesting than Blonde. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think here you get a little bit of the mafia interest and maybe some Herbert Hoover in uh, in Blonde, but uh, Foxy, we did a lot more of that. So mm. there's that's why that Castro would come in and whatnot because they were sort of focused on the assassination of Kennedy and Robert Kennedy as well, getting involved with Marilyn Monroe, which was not in Blonde, and uh, and the, just the whole political edge to it. So she she was a, a bright woman. She was definitely um, involved in politics and as well as in theater and in film. So I mean, she's just an interesting character, and and I don't think either one of these films does her a great amount of justice. So there is at least there is a bit of politics and insignificance. So let's talk about insignificance. Yeah. Then. Okay. So as I said, written by Terry Johnson, um, felt really like a mid-80s film, um, stars Teresa, Teresa Russell as the actress, Tony Curtis, who's actually kind of in Blonde as the senator, oh, yeah. uh, Gary Busey as the ball player, and Michael Emile as the professor. And these are stand-ins for Joe DiMaggio, uh, Marilyn Monroe, and of course, uh, Albert Einstein. Yeah. Um, sort of takes place in uh, New York City. It's really the one night of the... The famous seven-year itch sidewalk shoot, um, which was a very important night in film history. I think that whole shoot was basically a publicity stunt for the film. And this is, of course, where she stands over the subway subway grate and um, has the air air blown up upon her and takes her skirt up into the air. Um, 
it's funny. I don't know if they used that footage or if they probably reshot it somewhere in a studio because, um, as, as I recall, it was mostly you wouldn't shoot a scene like that <laughs> on an open set in the middle of New York City. So I, I believe that they just wanted to drum up some some publicity for the film, and they did this sort of as a stunt. Um, this is an interesting film. It's I don't think it's a biopic at all. I mean, it, it, what I liked about this film is at the is at the outset it says uh, there's a disclaimer at the beginning. I think it just said this film is fictitious or this film is a work uh-huh. of fiction, which uh, Blonde does not do. Um, it's sort of a Marilyn film. Um, she's kind of the protagonist, but those other three characters are kind of um, equally important uh, in bits and pieces. Uh, in short, uh, the senator, which is Tony Curtis, he visits uh, this professor who's at a staying in a hotel, and he is supposed to appear before the House on Un-American Activities Committee. I guess it's in Washington, D.C. This is taking place in New York City. Yep. Um, so he wants to interview him about the, they want to interview him. Is he a communist or has he, does he know any communists? It's sort of that fervor of the time. So definitely set in the 1950s. Um and New York City is a very small place in this film because it's a, they're all kind of in the same area just by chance. I think I'd read that it, you know, it was possible that these people could have known each other. Um, I guess Tony Curtis is the senator supposed to be um, the Eugene McCarthy character. Um, but the, whether they would have interacted in this way is uh, you know, completely fictional. I, I did read that Terry Johnson said that um, apparently after Marilyn died, yeah. a signed photograph of Albert Einstein was found among her possessions. Yeah, and that was that was the notion that that set the the, the kind of the, the original play in yeah. motion. Yeah, great. And one of the I mean one of the the uh, sort of the Act One curtain. There's this thematic statement about um, I think she says uh, she's had the best conversation of her life with um, Albert Einstein. So I think, uh, yeah, I think they probably did have a good conversation. Again, she was a bright woman, so I, the, all these things which belittle her intelligence just drive me crazy. Um, but uh, ultimately, she goes to visit the professor shortly after the senator leaves, after she's had this crazy shoot on the streets of New York City and sort of her, she's escaped uh, before her husband at the time, the ball player, possibly Joe DiMaggio, um, is left behind. She scoots off into the city, buys some items, and then goes with her items of like uh, rocket ships and cars and little toy soldiers. She goes to um, the professor's hotel room. She knows where he is for some reason. Um, and she explains the theory of relativity to Einstein, or the professor, um, which is a long sort of talky scene, but quite interesting. So putting these two characters together... Um, I, mean, I think it's, it's by far the most interesting scene in the film. Yeah, actually, yeah. I would say it's like it feels like it's the centerpiece. Really, yeah. This is the reason that the film exists, and, and everything else is either getting to this point or yeah. observing the fallout from this point. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's you know it's a fairly reasonable exp- explanation of the theory of relativity. I would say um, she seems to be having some sort of identity identity crisis, and I, I I like this part of the film in that she's only seen as a sex symbol. She's not seen for her mind, and the professor actually can see her for her intelligence. Um, but there's a lot of, um, I think, real world versus imagined world or alternative universe sort of study going on in this film. Um, they are definitely, um, you know, stand-ins for the real, the real people, um, but just in a, in a in a formation or a grouping that you would never really see them. Um, the you know the, the, the professor is sloppy. He's unkempt. He looks exactly like Einstein. And Mar- <laughs> Marilyn's beautifully put together, uh, made up, and blonde and breathy as you'd expect her to be. 
um, I'd say at the end of the first act, um, the professor lets the actress stay in the hotel room that night, which is kind of a um, kind of kind of controversial um, because she's married and he's supposed to appear before the um, House on American Activities of, uh, Committee. Um, but they do say, yeah, this is a great conversation. It's not going to be anything sexual necessarily, um, but um, he, she does spend the night in his um, apartment. Um, there were no real stakes as far as I could see in this film. It was sort of like passes by as this sort of uh, meditation on life and interactions with other humans, but I couldn't, you know, like, I, there's some stakes with Marilyn's marriage, I guess, with the with the, the ball player, Joe DiMaggio, but um, you, there was no tension, like, carrying you through this film, really. Um, if there is some tension, it comes when DiMaggio gets to the hotel room, um, He's asked his driver, I guess, to uh, take him where Marilyn went, and they go to the hotel. He's able to find uh, the professor's room, and um, he finds um, Marilyn Monroe with the professor, and that leads to some some tension there. Um, I mean, this is just at the moment, isn't it, when they're about to go to bed together? I yeah. think so. He like he just diffuses that. It's kind of I think. Uh, the, the the two characters the film is really interested in are Einstein and Marilyn, and the others are. Yeah. You know, the film is, isn't nearly as interested in them. Precisely. So they have this kind of this quite sweet um, relationship. I I just wrote down like one little interaction here, which I thought kind of summarized it really well. Which is um, not long after the the two of them meet, Marilyn explains to Einstein how humiliated she felt having to do the the scene for Seven Year Itch yeah. with his skirt blowing up around her hips, um, and. Uh, you know, she asks him, she says, you know, all these men were gawping at me. And she asks him, would you have watched? And instead of just being kind of chastened, he said, oh, no, I would have looked away. Einstein, he asks her, would you have liked me to? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I think is like a, it's a, it's a very sweet response because, you know, he's he's a man and he's in a hotel room with Marilyn Monroe. And, you know, he, clearly he finds her very attractive, but he's just offering her you know, the agency, which no one else will. Where he's kind of saying, you know, well, I know what I would like, yeah. but what? Well, what's your opinion on whether you are watched or not yeah. that's that's the, you know, the important part of the discussion um i thought that was kind of very sweet and you know initially he's being very um you know he's being a bit coy and he's saying oh we shouldn't do this and eventually you know, she kind of persuades him you know well, what the hell why don't we sleep together um and then you know that's the moment when joe DiMaggio yeah comes up. i never for a moment thought that they would sleep together but you know, the setup is there and i think we're supposed to assume that they would because that makes uh, DiMaggio's entrance that much more uh, menacing, I suppose. Um, and in all of this, the senator disappears for a long time, but he's in another hotel room where he's visited by a Marilyn Monroe lookalike call girl, and there's this uh, sort of bizarre sex <laughs> that happens there. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, DiMaggio's not there. He's in the he's in a bar for much of the film, and the senator is kind of in this other hotel room with this bizarre sexual experience in, in another place. So... They are sort of left behind, and, and then uh, Marilyn and the professor sort of take the leads here. Um, the So the ball player mistakes the professor for another psychiatrist, which again sort of uh, subtly pokes at the fact that maybe um, the actress uh, has some sort of uh, mental health issues. But in, one thing that caught me was that the actress and the ball player Marilyn and DiMaggio, um, agree to divorce sort of at one moment, and they, they know this person who can help them get a divorce. That's what I get out of it. And I know that this it was divorce was less common and, and sort of a little wow. harder to do at that time. So I guess that makes sense. Um, but um, she sort of uh, 
so they've agreed to divorce. They sort of get back together a few minutes later, like they're going to be in love again. It's all it's 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 interesting because the context of this night in particular, I think Blonde does a the other film does a pretty good job of it because Joe DiMaggio actually allegedly did uh, beat Marilyn Monroe up quite a bit after that show. He was so after that shoot because he was so embarrassed by um, her being so public and and exposed that way. Um, yeah. This film, you don't get that menace at all. It's much more like, oh, we're going to get divorced now. Um, they sort of briefly get back together. Um, and I think one thing to to mention that's pretty important is that all of these four principal characters have these sort of extensive flashback moments um, throughout the film. Uh, for the professor, he remembers his time in Europe under the Nazis. Um, and he also has these images of Japan and the atomic bomb. Um, going off so that he sort of he's wrestling with this guilt from the past similar to Blonde there's a lot of sort of past trauma that sort of um, influences the current story Marilyn I think um, her experiences were mostly in the orphanage where she put on these little sex shows these little um, girly shows for the boys in the orphanage Um, DiMaggio playing baseball as a kid and he sort of was looking for the approval I think of a father figure is what I took from that and then the senator being sort of sexually abused by a priest when he was young so there's all this um, past trauma sort of floating around in the present Um, and it's usually done by through um, just flashbacks Yeah, we do get that exposition that way Um, they're kind of quite theatrical stagey flashbacks aren't they as well oh yeah there's yeah a lot lot happening um they're not short flashbacks it's not like you just get a quick image it's more like you get a 20 30 second um sort of dreamy kind of flashback um they're done pretty well they're done pretty well but they are uh heavy exposition i guess um there's this a couple crazy scenes where um the actor will sampson who was chief bromden from one flew over the cuckoo's nest um is in an elevator and he starts telling the professor that he's a that the professor himself is a Cherokee, and he's sort of inspiring the professor to rethink things. I guess it's an interesting role. Um, it's not like he was a hot actor at that time, but he was very big in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he's got a couple scenes where he sort of challenges the professor to his thinking, and then he goes upstairs on the the roof of some the the, the, the rooftop of this hotel in New York City, and sort of does some singing and chanting and about it um, but it's an interesting cameo and um, <laughs> I think that's what it's supposed to do is to get the the professor thinking about things um, the senator arrives he's going to take the professor to the hearing the hearings but he finds the actress in the professor's bed um, and there's not it's funny because there's not a lot for these actors to do um, they're all playing famous people but they don't have they're not really given a ton in the script to to do throughout <laughs> no. the film so it's a little strange um, the senator actually sort of gets a challenges Marilyn quite a bit and then he ends up punching her in the stomach um, ah. and this I think the idea is that she gets a miscarriage in the process she's in the bathroom she's sort of bleeding out um, at the same time so she's losing some one of her dreams the professor throws all of his um uh, papers representing his life's work, all these equations and sort of developing the theory of relativity. He just takes this stack of papers and throws them to the streets of New York City. And uh, at the same time, because of the miscarriage, I think that gives the actress the permission structure to leave the ball player. So then they are going to uh, divorce. They, just, they agree to see their lawyer friend. Um, the actress sort of ends up uh, angry at the professor and his, his again, that guilt... Um, of his role in the, developing the atomic bomb uh, comes to the surface. He feels guilty. And then it sort of ends with this 
imaginary nuclear Armageddon yeah. that burns up the actress and seemingly everything. And, and that's sort of the resolution. And I'm not sure. It's, it's funny because they're reaching these places of peace, I guess, or resolution. But at the same time, uh, it comes through destruction, which is, you know, I think that's sort of a classic theme in a lot of mythology and, uh, and literature. So it makes sense to me. But it, it, at many times I felt like this film might just be way too smart for me. I didn't. There's a lot going on. It's like a, it's a meditation on uh, memory, I think, and w- how memory makes us who we are. I think that's what a lot of the, the trauma from youth was about. Uh, but I, I just, I couldn't figure it out beyond that. Um, it's it's not a great film. I don't think I would recommend it for people to go out and spend probably it was an hour and 45 minutes or something like that. Um, I don't know that the script could be a great film. That's the, that's the other thing. Is the, it's, it's really, it's a crazy idea. It's a wonderful idea. I'm glad they tried it, but I don't know that it um, could have been fantastic. And I, th- I actually think Blonde could have been a fantastic ah. film, and I don't think this film could have been. So it was interesting to see the two scripts. I, I preferred this film to Blonde, but um, I don't think either one of them actually is a very good film. And I don't think with the script as it was, I don't think this one could be, but what do you think? I, I mean, Insignificant started life as a play and it really, really looks it, doesn't it? Because it, you know, it all effectively happens in one, one set, doesn't it? It all happens in Einstein's hotel room and they, they put a tiny amount of effort in, don't they, to try and expand the story out. So there's a tiny amount of location shooting on New York streets at the beginning. And I suspect um, the, the, the scenes with the elevator operator are also scenes that have been added in in yeah. the hope of maybe expanding the story outside just a tiny amount. Okay. Um, I haven't seen the original play, but I strongly suspect it is you know, four characters in one hotel room. Yeah. And from that point of view, uh, when, you know, it goes through some interesting themes, doesn't it? It does talk about um, Einstein's guilt and um, about uh, Joe DiMaggio's disappointment and um, Senator McCarthy's kind of bitterness. And, you know, so... Um, and it would all wraps up in in this kind of envelope of the fear of nuclear war, and in 1985 yeah. that was like a super super big thing, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I can remember in 1985 being, you know, uh, fairly convinced that there was a 50 50 chance that we'd all be there by this time next year. Yeah. You know that uh, you know the threat of somebody dropping a bomb on on London was very plausible, and yeah. it was something that teenagers talked about a lot. Um doesn't seem so contemporary an idea now well watching the film in 2020 oh well okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit more plausible now but yeah i agree with you i do remember living (laughs) under that uh that fear of nuclear war happening at any moment and uh, the, the very very last line in the movie where um Marilyn, she tells einstein oh don't worry about the bomb because the people who own the bombs are also the people who own all the buildings and so, you know, they're never going to drop a bomb because they'll lose all that money. Yeah. And she was saying, you know, the only way they'd ever consider bo- dropping a bomb is if somehow, somehow somebody managed to invent a bomb that would kill people and not destroy buildings. Mm. And, and, you know, in 1985, this notion of the neutron bomb was still like a very, very modern, new, contemporary idea. So this notion that there was a bomb that would kill the people and not the buildings was, you know, a very, very current. And it feels like, you know, that's that's the kiss off of the movie um, that's kind of so underlined by the script that I'm left kind of thinking, well, God, is that what the whole thing is about? Mm. Is it almost as if to say that the, you know, that the people struggles that are going on in this film, people worrying about 
you know, whether they will have a family, whether they will have a divorce, whether their life's work means anything, whether they're bringing order to the world or not. Maybe all of that is largely irrelevant when you live under the shadow of, you know, the potential for the destruction of everything and everyone you know in a moment. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing that is what the insignificance of the title is. But um, whether it works as a film is a perfectly good question. Yeah. I don't know. I'd never seen a Nick Rogue film before I watched this as a teenager. Yeah. And I remember being quite surprised and shocked by the like the sudden dream sequences and the mm. almost sort of abstract fleeting memories that invade um, kind of seemingly at random. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's only after I saw another couple of Nick Rogue films, I thought, oh, right, that's what he always does then. I get it now. Nobody else really quite makes films like that, do they? You, know, it, you have to admire someone who develops a style and sticks with it. Yeah. Well, boy, Blonde, Andrew Dominic sort of made a film too where there were these uh, random uh, moments that cut into the in the life yeah. of, uh, of the actress of Marilyn Monroe. So I think there's a – I mean, I'm not going to say that he does that all the time because I don't know his work very well, but um, – Yes, they're, those, these two films are similar in that way. And I think it has to do with something of... Um, they both feel a little untethered and, and they sort of suffer from a lack of context. I think that's the thing. So that both of these films can have these floating scenes because they're already kind of floating. They're not really attached to anything in reality to begin with. And I think for me that made... It was a little disorientating as a, as a viewer to, to see the, both of these films because I never felt like I had the right context to actually... Um, sit down and enjoy them for what they were meant to be. Uh, um, at least Marilyn, the character, is allowed some agency in this film. Yeah, much, she, yeah. She's allowed to have this kind of rich inner life. Yeah, precisely. I, I think that, yeah, the standout scene and the one that I remember is the one where she explains special relativity to Einstein. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and what I really appreciate is the way that Einstein, you know, he listens to her explanation. Yes. And he has enough respect for her at the end to explain to her that you know, although she thinks she understands it, she doesn't, and that it's you know that um, that seeing what the consequences of the theory are yeah. is not the same as understanding what it is. And if yeah. you don't know the maths, you don't understand the theory. Yeah. But I like the way that he doesn't patronise her and say, "Oh, well done, you got it right." You know, he treats her as an intellectual equal, and he says, "You know, well, that was great, but actually, you don't understand it for these reasons." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's nice. To, it's just nice to see her get a bit of respect and kudos, isn't it? Yes, and the the entire time that she's explaining, he's sort of giddy and, you know, he he mutters a few things here and there, but he really lets her explain the whole thing to him and he's smiling and I think he really uh, loves the fact that he's reached at least one person, you know, and and, and, uh, she's not one of the the little people or the normal people, but she is one human being who understands his theory and can can explain it back to him. So I did like that scene. That's, yeah, the film really centers around that scene in particular. when you were talking about the buildings and people, though, I did have an idea because I, I, I feel like that's in some ways the exact opposite of the desires of our overlords. I think actually if you destroy buildings, that means you have to rebuild the buildings and you, and you need people to buy the things and pay the rents or buy the buildings or buy the things that go into the buildings. So ironically, I think if that's kind of the theme, it sort of misses because I think the the... The rule of the world, the rule of capitalism, I think, is to destroy some stuff or create stuff that's not going to last or is going to be destroyed so that you can make it again and again yeah. and again. Uh, this is, you sound like someone who's read 1984 recently. Oh, God, I'd love to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been that long, but yeah, not too recently. But yes, absolutely. So 
Um, it is, yeah, it, it does place well in the 1980s because those are the sorts of, sorts of things that we were thinking about. Uh, 1985 is not very far from 1984, clearly. So um, I think, the yeah, the nuclear Armageddon was definitely on our minds, and that really is what this sort of leads up to bit by bit. I mean, you see it a bit more coming with the the um, Albert Einstein uh, r- reminiscences, but um, uh, you definitely ends up with it. This one ends in fire. There's a lot of fire in, in Blonde, too, but... Um, this one ends up with it, um, and I think Blonde had more fire in the beginning, although, boy, there was a fire during one of her abortions, I think. Oh, God, there was. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 37, 37 years between these films. Yeah. Um, do you think Do you think we've learned anything about Marilyn Monroe in those 37 years that means she gets a better deal now than she used to? I, I don't think she got a better deal on, on either of these films, really. She gets, and I, I want to apologize to you because it, it was sort of my idea to watch Blonde. I think I saw it was coming out. I had this script in my back pocket. I've been a Maryland fan in some ways and and studied her. Um, and I'm just sorry. I'm sorry, Jimmy, that I asked you to watch that film. It was two hours and 45 minutes. And then um, I'm also sorry because I think Maryland gets a better deal when you see something like um, Some Like It Hot or Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Right. Um, yeah. You had at yep. one point suggested, "Hey, let's watch some like it hot." Um, and you see a, a few clips of them making that, um, and even those clips are not very fair to her performance, and I don't think they're very accurate uh, because she really throws some tantrums in those scenes. But those are great films. So I mean, I think to really get a good appreciation of Marilyn, go watch her films. Do not watch these uh, biopics, and I, I think biopics more often than that are, are more often than not are too loyal to the subject and you can't get away with it and these two are both kind of not loyal enough and they don't take her seriously enough um they don't really pretend to be true stories but they sort of reap the benefits of being inextricably linked to her true stories um so they, they both feel a little disingenuous in that sense but i would say that insignificance gives her a much better uh treatment than does blonde Whereas Blonde feels really, it does feel exploitative, exploitative and just like a sexploitation film. Exploitative. If you want, if you want the real deal, go to the source. Yeah, is the answer. Then I yeah, think go so. to the source. Yeah, yeah. Go to the source. Okay, we've just got time for also playing at this theatre. Um, what's also playing at the theatre at the moment? What have you seen? I have seen five films this week. <laughs> And well, you've been busy. The two that we've just discussed were by far the worst, so <laughs> I'm going to recommend two films that people will have a hard time finding, um, but they are definitely worth it. Um, one is called Taming the Garden. Uh, I don't remember the name of the director. She probably is Georgian because it, it's a treatment of the former prime minister of Georgia who is sort of buying up trees, ancient trees in some cases, 200, 300-year-old trees, from villages in Georgia to put them in his own garden, and it's spectacular. Another film called The Territory, which is a treatment of um, indigenous peoples in Brazilian in Brazil as the rainforest around them is sort of being chopped down or burned up, more fire. Um, and then, spoiler alert, we are going to talk about Nicholas Rogue again in our next podcast, but yes. I saw Moon Age Daydream, which is the David Bowie biopic. Ah, excellent. Which we will pair soon, coming to podcasts near you. Well, this podcast uh-huh. near you um, in a couple of weeks. We'll pair that with Nick Rogue's um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. It's worth. Featuring yeah, exciting. What about near well, you? Uh, the only thing that's been playing near me, I was not nearly so intellectual and, and uh, interesting. Uh, we watched Oblivion, the Joseph Kaczynski picture with um, 
with Tom Cruise in from oh. about 2013. Yeah, so yeah. we, a family, all sat down and watched that. Okay. And uh, I, you, I'm, it's no secret how much of an admirer I am of Tom the Cruise, but uh, this film, um, fantastic production design. Uh, and a story that pretty much works, but it, it relies on one of my least favourite tropes, which is um, people not telling each other important plot details. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so once again, it's a story which works because, you know, one of the characters doesn't tell anybody one important bit of information, which she easily could have done. And then that would have made the film only 40 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, yeah, it annoys me when uh, films rely on that. But hey, it's great production design. Okay. Right. This has been <laughs> this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, join us next week for a popcorn counter and then we will be back in two weeks time uh, with more Nick Rogue it'll be the regular Nick Rogue Cinema Club join us until then uh, see you see you everybody